This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. In today's episode, I'm going to give you a stat about home buying that I cannot believe. I have a key warning for you. Also, should you buy a protection plan on your cell phone? I'm going to lay out the math for you. Oh boy, Redfin reports in a new uh, survey that two-thirds of home buyers in 2020 made an offer on homes sight unseen. They would look at a virtual tour online, they'd look at listings online, and then The actual number, 63% of buyers made an offer on a home they had never set foot in. That's the highest percent ever. And the year before, it was like half. year before that, it was a third. So this is playing with fire. You know, in a market that's rising... People got lazy. And I know last year is an exception. Hopefully the number will come down some in 21 as people are less afraid of corona. But you can't get the real feel you need from a virtual tour. You need to visit an area you're thinking of buying a house, the neighborhoods, in that area the neighborhood and street where a house is you're thinking of making an offer on you need to visit daytime and night think about how a lot of neighborhoods feel really welcoming during the day and don't feel quite as safe or may feel a little sinister at night you won't have that feeling from watching a virtual tour or a video, or going to an online listing. And right now, it doesn't matter with home prices rising, because if you buy a home and you're like, wow, what were we thinking? You shrug your shoulders and you sell it again. And you may even make money on a quick turn. But this is not normal that home values go up like they have. They can't continue to do that because we're out running people's ability to afford homes and interest rates aren't going to be this dirt cheap forever so you got to be more careful and there are predictions from economists that this is going to continue that people have become so used to doing everything on their phones or on a laptop that this will be a new normal for people buying homes 
And I'm saying, don't make it your new normal. You want to really understand. And by the way, one rule I have, a lot of people buying homes right now can't gauge it. I always say to somebody buying a home where they're going to have to commute to work, that you don't just do that drive because most people are looking at houses on the weekend and you can cover vast territory in minutes that during a weekday, during normal commute cycles, could be a really long commute. Right now you have no way to gauge that because traffic is down enough that even uh, daytime workday rush hour commutes are unusually shorter than normal. But I want you to think more and be on the ground more before you make an offer. And I'd love for you to get out and walk the street and the street surrounding in a neighborhood you're thinking of buying. And always look what's behind the neighborhood behind the neighborhood you're looking in. Because that can be an X factor that affects your quality of life and your safety. Uh, there's a neighborhood that's been in the news in a local area I've been following where one of those giant convenience stores is about to be built. And people in that neighborhood are seeing a real decline in their quality of life from that mega convenience store being built. And if people had really walked the area and seen what was adjacent to their neighborhood, they probably could have seen the future and seen not necessarily a giant convenience store, but something commercial was going to intrude on the tranquility of their neighborhood. Again, you're not going to be able to figure that out from online shopping for a, for a home. Krista? Jim in Georgia is also going to make a big purchase. He says, what additional fees should you pay when buying a used vehicle? The dealer added on fees above the listed sales price for nitrogen-filled tires. Oh, no, they didn't. $89. No, no, wait, wait, wait. $89 for nitrogen-filled tires? Uh-huh. $595 for administration fees. $38 in title fees and 49 in e-filing fees which totals $771. Seems like they should have just included these fees in the listed sales price. Of course they should have. And uh, car dealers are one of the most powerful organizations in state legislatures. So dealers are allowed to get away with all kinds of uh, stuff they shouldn't be able to. The administrative fee you said also sometimes referred to as a dock fee or whatever, a dealer makes up as the title for it. It's just a way of being able to rip off a vehicle buyer. There is no legitimate thing for it. The $89 for the nitrogen in the tires, I'd say you don't buy a vehicle from a place that plays these games. The other two fees uh, uh, may both be legit. Definitely the $38 for the title, that would be a legit fee. Nothing you should make a fuss about. What I always say when you're shopping for a vehicle is you get a quote from the dealer, not the price of the vehicle, but you ask all other fees and costs I must pay to buy from you. 
and then the dealer is duty bound to disclose to you if they are going to have a bunch of made up fees known in the industry as packs or pack charges and dealers trade information with each other about made up fees that they can create to rip off a buyer this has all come about because of people shopping online to buy vehicles and so people are focused just on what's the price what's the price what's the price so the dealers play this con game with you that in addition to the price you have to pay all these various fees most of which are just hogwash Kevin in New York says, why are giant monster monster mega banks so toxic while giant brokers are able to treat their customers so well? That is an absolutely phenomenal question and one that I have tossed around in my brain for a long time. You know, there are people who think big is automatically bad and there are situations where big is turned out to be bad. And that's certainly been the case in banking with the four giant monster mega banks that control half of banking in the United States and just absolutely rook their customer base. Um, they are protected by the federal regulators who look at these four banks as what's known as systematically important. And so they're given a hall pass on treating people like dirt and all the fees and all that. And the brokerage business, it's just flat out competition. And the people who've emerged as the giants, the big three, Vanguard, Fidelity, and Schwab, only will stay in the position they're in if they do a good job serving people. Uh, That's been an issue with Vanguard lately with a decline in the quality of the customer service there. But they have grown into behemoths because of the value proposition they offer to customers. The irony with the banks is the bigger banks offer the worst service and worst deals to customers. And there are other industries where you can see that dichotomy as well. But I don't have the answer is why these three large enterprises, Vanguard, Schwab, and Fidelity, have emerged to be so incredibly successful in an industry that has so many players and have maintained continued growth even as it becomes harder to stay as efficient as you get larger and larger. And this is from Ron. You have said many times that we should have more than one major credit card in case one of them fires us. Does my American Express count as one? Yes. American Express, Discover, Visa, and MasterCard, those four are the majors. And uh, poor Discover, nobody ever thinks of them, but they're a major. And the key is a distinction that's very important. Having two visas, two MasterCards, and American Express, whatever, having any two from the same place, the same issuer, the same bank, counts only as one in my book. You want to have two entirely different financial institutions as your minimum for the number of these accounts that you have. Because otherwise, who knows? What happens? They decide they don't like you for one. They could fire you from both. Next, I want to talk about service plans on cell phones. People love to buy them. The question is, when should you? This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. 
At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. I bought a, another cell phone for our account. We have I think 22 lines on our cell phone, corporate cell phone thing. And so I was buying a new phone for one of the account holders. And the salesperson at the cell phone store, which, by the way, let me digress for a second. Their coronavirus procedures were fantastic. Had to make an appointment online. They limit the total number of people in the store to 10 spread out everybody's properly masked and i was very impressed with that but anyway as we're moving through the transaction the salesperson had obviously been trained to ask me did i want this protection plan or that protection plan not did i want one on the phone it was which one i wanted and i said no protection plan And she said, do you know what this phone costs? I said, yeah, you just told me. Well, don't you need to protect? This is my favorite thing they all are taught in sales school. Don't you want to protect your investment? Okay, a phone is not an investment. It is spending on something. It is not an investment. Neither is a TV or anything else. But I read with great interest a story in the Wall Street Journal about cell phone plans, what you pay for them versus the value they present. And the cell phone carriers themselves, Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile, all push these really hard. And the plans from them are a zillion dollars. And so the thing is, In a survey of over a 1,000 people, Wall Street Journal reports half had never, ever broken or lost a cell phone. Half. And a quarter had done so once. That means you have a quarter of people who have either lost or broken a cell phone more than once over the years. And they're like, man, this cost me so much money. But the crazy thing is, even if you did break your phone, the reality is, I'm looking at all the math here, you're likely going to spend less repairing that phone than what you pay for two years of coverage on that phone from a cell phone carrier. And remember, half of people have never 
broken one or had one stolen ever. And another quarter only once over the years. It is throwing money away. Throwing it away when you buy these quote-unquote protection plans. But you know what the best protection is for a phone? Okay, my phone right here. Got to see this, Krista. I have an indestructible case on it. Mm -hmm. This thing has a huge glass screen protector on the front, a huge thingy around it, a huge protection on the back, and I have managed to make a sleek modern phone as ugly as it could possibly be. But you know what's beautiful about it? I can't break this thing. I bet my son could. You know what? I bet he couldn't with this case. <laughs> broken In so fact, many. he and I can go to a parking deck and I'll let him drop it 12 feet off the parking deck onto concrete below. And I bet you it won't have a scratch on it. Okay. So you can, for just about any phone, you can buy, you know, one of the fancy real Otter boxes, not one of their slim down ones, or a number of other cases that will protect your phone. And that's the best insurance you can get. But if you're still not convinced, use one of the credit cards to pay your cell phone bill that includes uh, basically free insurance on your phone. Some cover theft, some cover only damage to the phone. But that is a much better thing to do. The one place you should never buy it is from your cell phone carrier. If you still want to pay for it, buy it from a third party. Buy it from Square Trade or somebody like that where you can buy a protection plan on your cell phone for a tiny fraction of what the cell phone carrier will rip you off for or Apple with Apple Care or Samsung with their equivalent to Apple Care that are both priced sky high. All right, let's take some questions. Brandon in Illinois says, Hey Clark, we have an 18-year-old starting college in the fall. He wants to begin investing but has no W-2 income at this time. What would be a good place for him to get started? We're sure we have enough in his college fund. Looking for a place that parents and grandparents can contribute for him as well. He will be looking to contribute $1,000 to $2,000 a year. Fidelity Investments, the Fidelity Zero Funds. Fidelity has um, index funds that they give you for free. You pay no commissions. You pay no ongoing management expenses. And they do this as a way to attract people like your 18-year-old to investing and that they, uh, what Fidelity's hope is, that they'll become brand loyal to Fidelity. So $1 is enough to open an account. They have a variety of zero funds that are available. It's like they're branding for these uh, fantastic index funds that invest. You can choose domestic, you can choose international, blah, blah, blah. Um, And so this is a wonderful starting point. And I know there are others that would talk about why not use Robinhood or whatever. Uh Uh-uh. 
I wouldn't do things like that. I think you're much better off using Fidelity as the starting point with really smart investing. Because it's not going to be in a Roth, it's going to be in an investment account. One of the great advantages of index funds is extremely favorable tax treatment. In your son's financial situation, the tax rate would be zero on gains in the funds for years to come. Randall in Ohio says we currently owe $92,000 on our mortgage with 13 years remaining of a 30-year mortgage. The rate is variable at 3%, which has worked in our favor since refinancing in 2006. We're concerned with rates going up in the future. We can refi for 15 years at a fixed rate of 2.375. Fees would be approximately three to $5,000. Is it worth refinancing or do we continue with our variable rate? I don't want you at a time that the rates are so favorable on fixed to stay in a variable. Uh, Krista, did you say what the balance was on the loan? $92,000. 92 is a tough amount to refi because the a lot of the costs you have are pretty much the same regardless. What I would recommend is talk with a credit union and a mortgage broker and see if you can do a no-closing-cost refi on this, taking a higher rate than the 2.375. Yeah, uh, it, normally you would step up about half a point and then eliminate those closing costs. You'll save money from the first day, and you will have a lower interest rate that you won't have had to essentially pay for to get. And Brittany says, hi, Clark. I love your podcast. I'm trying to help my parents with taxes. My dad retired as of the end of 2020, and he now receives Social Security, and so does my mom. Do they need to have taxes taken out of their checks? My dad also gets a pension check of $1,000 a month. Please help me help them. So the pension check would generate uh, taxable income that normally what your parents would have to do is pay something called ES, quarterly uh, tax estimates, unless the pension provider is sending them a net check, net of doing uh, withholdings for taxes. I happen to be lucky enough to be a pension recipient, and my pension comes net of tax withholdings. So as long as they're having taxes withheld already, they're probably fine. Um, it doesn't sound like they have a lot of sources of income. Other than that, they would generate a lot of tax issues or tax headaches. All right, we're going to finish up with a razor comment, really, a razor commentary. Michael in Georgia says, I bought a straight razor, pewter brush, soap dish, and a strop 20 years, 20 some years ago for $150 in Australia. By my guess, today my shaves have cost me about four cents each. I use shaving soap, so if you add that in, about another half cent a year. Plus, no waste in blades or razors and cans of cream. Sure beats buying disposable razors and metal cans of shaving cream. I only recently had to hone the razor back to the ultra-fine edge, so I had a few bucks in the mix for the stone. Still a lot cheaper and environmentally better than disposable razors. Plus, it will last another 20-plus years. You can't top that. You are so right. I cannot top that. And, you know, once I learned that a razor blade could last as long as a year, the blades I already had, 
I have more than a lifetime supply. So I'm stuck with what I've got, and I'm going to use them up. Um, I'm going to have to live to be about 250 years old, though, I think, to use them all up. (laughs) Oh, the razor blade thing never gets old and never goes away. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Clark Howard Show, Shaving Edition. We're here for you seven days a week at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com. Subscribe to our free newsletters if you want to learn even more about saving money from our incredible team of researchers and writers. 